Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And I thought of Chuck Todd. <laughs> I did. I thought Chuck Todd in the French horn. Yeah. And then I thought of the thin man, because everybody says thin is a reed. Yeah. Right? That's yes. a very common thing. Yes. Then I thought of the thin man. By right? the way, Willis Reed, another reed. Willis Reed. Yeah. yeah everybody, lo- I love the captain, number 19. I might call the kid the captain, but I was thinking of the thin man. But how about the captain? I kind of like the captain. How captain, about the captain, captain number nineteen? Captain. Left side, number nineteen. <laughs> the Tony Kornheiser show is on now. So that's what the kid is. He's the captain. It's as simple as that. He's the captain. Willis Reed. And I mean, uh, for other people, it's Derek Jeter in New York. Many, many years after I left New York, but for me in New York. It's Willis Reed. So the kid is the captain. And the fact that there are three children in Michael's household now has kept Michael away from us yes. today. I mean, this is, this is a little bit. Two is a lot harder than one. Three is a lot harder than two. <laughs> it's, you know, three, it's well, you hard. go from playing man-to-man defense and now you're Three over. under five. Yeah. Come on now. Come on now. <laughs> so he took the day off. That's okay. Um, I, I'm not going to start the show. I would have if Michael were here. I would have started with the golf. But we have Chuck Culpepper on soon. So I'm not going to start with the golf. We'll just go to that with Chuck Culpepper. And we'll have Mark Maskey on in a little while as well to talk again about Deshaun Watson, who we talked about with um, Jason Lockin Ford the other week. And it's, it's endlessly fascinating to me. And it really is. I mean, I, I don't know how he's going to play. Right. This is just me. Yeah. And I know there are a lot of people out there who will, their rejoinder will be very simple. He's not accused of anything criminal. Grand juries have said, no, we are not going to take – and I understand that. But to me, it's like, but there's 24 lawsuits, mm-hmm. 24 lawsuits. How is this guy going to be eligible to play? So we'll talk to Maskey because Maskey had a story the other day about how the league is going to do something meaningful, the meaningful suspension. Yes. You know, not something casual. So we'll talk to Maskey about that. There's two things I want to talk about, other than the fact that I bought the TaylorMade Stealth Driver, and so far it works for me. Oh, really? So far I'm getting about 10 to 15 yards more, and I'm getting roll. That's fantastic. Well, I got to hit it well, which I don't often do, because I stink. But, <laughs> you know, I played uh, Saturday and Sunday and hit the ball pretty well. I was happy about that. It was but windy yesterday. Which you said it was we, we, much windier Saturday. Oh, was it? Much, much windier Saturday, yes. But you, you don't mind playing in the wind. You, I like playing. Yeah, well, I'm no good. I don't really keep score. It doesn't right. matter. I just like being out there. But there are two things I want to talk about. And one, and we don't do this a lot, one is the hockey. And I want to talk about the hockey because I can gloat. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to gloat. But I'm going to gloat now. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had uh, Mark Messier on the show on the PTI show last week before the first game. And I said, don't you think that Colorado should be favored? Don't you think because they had a better record during the regular season, they had more points, they had more goals than Tampa Bay, and in the playoffs, they had been even better than Tampa Bay, going through their division, their conference, quicker then Tampa Bay went through. Don't you think they should be favored? And Wilbon laughed at me. Oh, no, 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 no. The Ning should be favored. He's the only person who calls him the Ning. The Ning should be favored. And Messier said, no, Tampa Bay should be favored. So after the first game was played, I said to Wilbon, you, Wilbon, and your boy, Messier, made fun of me, but I'm up one nothing at the moment, and I'm going to ride the hot horse, and I'm going to say that Colorado's going to win game two at home in Colorado. Not because I think they're going to win, but because I think they should be favored. And Wilbon laughed at me again. 
<laughs> Seven goals later, I don't know that Will Bond is laughing. Tampa Bay has given up 11 goals in two games and scored one on their own. Right? No, no. Is that it? I, no, 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 no. The, the first game was 4-3. So they've scored three on their own. It was 4-3, and then it was 7 nothing. right? You can check that. I yes. think I'm right on that. Yes. 4-3 and 7 nothing. Andre Vasilevsky, who Wilbon believes is the greatest goalie in the entire world, has given up 11 goals. Unless they yanked him from game two, which I don't think they did. He's given up 11 goals in two games. Now, again, I'm not saying that Tampa Bay can't win. You're looking. Am I right yeah, on the numbers? 4-3 and 7-love. Seven, yeah. seven right. yes. So did, was Vasilevsky in the whole way uh, on the second game? See if you can see that. I'm, again, I'm not saying Tampa Bay can't win or won't win. They are the two-time defending champion. They certainly can win. But in order to win now, and they go home, they go home. But in order to win the series now, they have to win four of the next five games. That's a tall order in a championship series against a quality team. They'll have three games at home. That's all they'll have. So they're going to have to, of those four, they're going to have to win one on the road, it seems to me. Yeah. Because Colorado gets two more at home if it goes seven. I'm just saying it's hard. I'm saying that perhaps Wilbon and Messier were blinded by the light of the two Stanley Cup championships, as, as we all would be. Sure. Colorado looks better right now. Right they now, also I mean, score a goal and a half a game more in these playoffs when you, than Tampa. When you put up a seven spot in hockey, I mean, that's, that's just a lot. Uh, Vasilevsky uh, did, was in the entire game in game two. Think he's shaken? I would think a little bit. You Gotta know? be a little bit, I mean, right? I gets mean, home, gets home. You know, it's sure, better. But I mean, if you're the coach, I mean, I might have taken him out in that game, just saying, I "Look, I don't. We're, we're not going to win this, so let's just save your psyche for game three. I don't know. You know, uh, if I'm Colorado, <clears throat> I'm not trying to sweep them. I just want to win one. Just win one. Just yeah. win one there. Yeah, and then they got to win three. You know, yeah, and if you Tampa, it's you have to win Game Three. You oh, have sure. to, sure, yes. sure. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and people that know me, or you know, people understand that I have OCD, and it has to do with numbers a lot. And I look at numbers on license plates, and I add them in my head, and I'm very attuned to DC license plates. I don't care about Maryland license plates. I don't care about Virginia license plates. <laughs> I don't care. I care about DC license plates, which in the main, have two letters and then four numbers. And the letters are of an order. In other words, about over 20 years ago, I think, I think it's over 20 now, DC changed from six numbers to two letters and four numbers. And they started with AA. And they went all the way through the A's, and then they went BA, and they went all the way through the B's with one exception, they stopped, I'm pretty certain about this, they stopped using I, because I looks like one. Sure. So when you're announcing a license plate, <clears throat> you would not necessarily know the difference between I and one. So many of the ensuing letters don't have the I, but I think they have everything else. And we went through the A's and the B's and the C's and the D's and the E's and the F's, and we are now, I believed into the G's. 
And you may even have GI for all I know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not certain about the eyes and someone can tell me about this, but I'm pretty sure because one, I'm pretty sure that one or two of the letters did not have the eyes, but that's not even, that's neither here nor there. We're in the G's and I have seen GU. Um, and you go all the way through, you go 26 letters in the alphabet, unless something has changed since I was born and we're using 28 letters now. I just thought we had 26. I've seen GUs. I have not yet seen a GV, but I, I'm certain the GVs are out. I haven't seen a GW or a GX or a GY or a GZ. I know I have not seen a GX, a GY, and a GZ. And the other day, I saw not one, but two plates JA and not JA Adonda. <laughs> no time for you today, JA. No. I saw a J-A, which means there's no H. There's no H, yeah. Well, what happened to H and no I? And again, in my head, I'm thinking I, where you could say, okay, that's the number one. We'd get the plates wrong. If you were calling in something to the police, you could get the plates wrong. Okay. Right. I understand not having I. Well, what happened to H? Yeah. Did somebody I simply forget <laughs> when they were ordering the plates? Do prisoners still make plates like they used to? I don't know how you get plates. I don't. I don't think. I don't think they still make. They used prisons. to make them in prisons. Yes, yes. That famously. was the work. Yes, was. That's a hundred years ago. Right. I have no idea. Somebody could tell. But how did we get to JA? Yeah, and it was a JA four start. It's like so that means at least at least three thousand are down the drain. Right. Yeah. I. I. I really. I have not noticed this. This is, I'm obsessed with this. Right, but now I will not be able to avoid looking at every single DC license plate and looking for an H, you know, just to see if it's out there. Well, uh, how, we went to J. We skipped H utterly. Yeah. Somebody will know. Somebody will know. Yeah, I'm sure and somebody, somebody will email us, right? Yes, I would, that's, I would think so. It's disconcerting to me. Yes. Well, yeah, it's, it breaks up the, uh, what the are symmetry doing? of it all, doesn't what it? What are we doing? And I, again, I haven't seen any GX, GY, GZ. Did we just stop? Did we say, you know what? Geez, we've had enough of you. We're going straight to J's. <laughs> right, enough of the but that cha it changes, for me, it changes everything. Sure. I don't really understand it. And it's not like people, it's not like the two that I saw were personalized license plates. Yes. I mean, I don't, maybe they were, but I don't know. I wouldn't. They I had mean, four numbers. No, no, no. Those weren't personalized. Nobody's going to say, yeah, give me the personalized number of J, JZ, whatever, you know, 4444, 44, yeah. something like that. Very strange. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I've got. Um, we'll get into the show. We'll have Chuck Culpepper talk about the Masters. Matthew Fitzpatrick is a big day for Wilbon. Matthew Fitzpatrick went to Northwestern yes. on a scholarship from England following Luke Donald, who had come over from England and done so well at Northwestern and on the Pro Tour. Matthew Fitzpatrick went to Northwestern, and Wilbon is ecstatic. All day yesterday, he said, I think he can win. I, think, I said, I think he can win. I don't know that he can win, but he won, and he won – with a great sand shot on 15, I think it was on 15, and then he poured in birdies. He poured in a birdie from like 45 feet at one point. He won. Nobody lost and gave it to him. He won the tournament. So we're back with Chuck Culpepper. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, Five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. 
Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Brent White. I'm going to read this. This is long. By the way, the, the name of this band was The Squires, and this is a song called Anytime that was recorded about 45 years ago. Tony, I've attached some real music for your audience. Today in the 60s in Northern California, there were many small-time garage bands. I was fortunate to play in a band called The Squires, not to be mistaken for the successful British band, The Squires. And by the way, this sounds just like the Monkees. <laughs> Doesn't it? Yeah. Just like the Monkees. We were together for four years, and I was the youngest at 17 years old playing keyboards and bass. We had 150 songs in our repertoire, and about eight of the songs were original songs written by our lead guitarist, Chuck. We played small gigs, mostly frat parties at Stanford, UC Davis, local parties in Sacramento. In 1967, our agent, Betty Kay, got us a summer gig playing at a new pizza place and party house in Davis, California called Mousy's. It was an all-summer job, which was fabulous because it meant I wouldn't have to work at my father's store doing all the garbage jobs he could, he could, so he could show the other employees he wasn't showing favoritism towards me. Another band was also hired to play, and we alternated weekly. The name of the other band was the Gollywogs. At the end of the summer, both bands were invited to San Francisco by Fantasy Records to record original music. We were totally freaked out. Couldn't believe it. We felt we'd hit the big time. This is just it's, this is the plot of that thing you do. Exactly, including working We recorded our music at the Rep at Fantasy. And the rep at Fantasy told us to listen to the radio day and night because our songs were going to be played on the air. Can you believe it? Our band, The Squires. We stayed up all day and night listening to KFRC out of San Francisco and KXOA out of Sacramento, waiting to hear our songs played. About a week later, a song came on, and it was one of the Gollywog songs. We were ecstatic. We thought our song was sure to be next. At the end of the song, the DJ told the audience that the group was a new band called Credence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> we thought, no way that's the Gollywogs. Obviously, Fantasy Records asked them to change their name. That was that. CCR became one of the greatest bands ever. Unfortunately, the Squires were never heard from again, and our songs were never played on the radio. So now we're doing it. Yeah. 40 years later, and wasn't maybe that- 50 years later, we're doing it. That was any time. We'll have another song later. That plays in Chuck Culpepper, who was, I believe, and I don't say this all the time, sort of privileged to be at the U.S. Open at the Country Club, because that was a great tournament. Um, at one point in that tournament, you had seven people worldwide top ten in contention. They all fell off. I think I'm right on this, Chuck. Scheffler, McElroy, Matsuyama, Burns, Morikawa, Rahm. That's six. Six in the top ten, and none of them won. If you and, and you you were there. How do you do, how do you explain six in the top ten and none of them wins? Well, I was privileged, yes, to to start there, yeah. and um, because that was some event. But uh, I I just exp- this this guy Fitzpatrick hits seventeen greens. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. Seventeen greens. I mean, that's and I, Nicholas said it in a uh, social media post. I guess that it was just one of the best rounds he had ever seen in a final round. You know, especially given the circumstances. So. I mean, I guess if you think about it, this guy at rank number 18 as he played that round is a top 10 player now, or it, it, and probably was yesterday morning when he started. Right. Anyway, so, right. Yeah, so it's yet another in there just seemingly boundless uh, parade of, 
of risen stars that they have. And when you look at a tournament, there are so many people who legitimately not only can win it, but maybe even, you know, win it decisively. There's lots of them. It's hard to follow in some ways. There is, I mean, the, the problem with Matthew Fitzpatrick, and I don't, this is not a problem, and Wilbon should love him because he went to Northwestern. The problem is, is he Danny Willett or is he Nick Faldo? You know, people like Danny Willett pops up and he wins the Masters. Justin Rose pops up, has a really good career. Um, but I, Nick Faldo is the standard bearer for British golf at this point because he ended up winning six majors. There's, there's no – is he Danny Willett? Is he Michael Campbell? You know, we, you can't know, right? They all look good when they win, right, Chuck? Right. That's right. And I just think there just seems to be such an air tightness to him yeah. that makes me think that this is not a one-time deal, although – one time I was at this tournament in Palm Springs, and I was all excited about Steve Stricker. So nice. And I wanted him to win a major. And I mentioned to this great golf writer, Jeff Rude, who had oh, a sure. cigar in his mouth unlit and who says to me, they're hard to win. So I always try to keep that in mind uh, when I'm projecting. how People were projecting McElroy at 10, you know, the last time he won a major eight years ago. So, And it's been eight years now. So. That's right. But I do think multiple for this guy. So let's get to what was. I mean, everybody will differ as to what was the critical point in, in the round. But I believe it was this. I believe it was on 13 when Fitzpatrick birdied and Zalatoris came back and made par. And within 30 seconds on 14, Scheffler missed a six-footer that could have tied him for the lead. To me, that was the point in which everyone but Zalatoris and Fitzpatrick fell away, and I wasn't even going to consider them from then on. Are you in accord with that, or do you think, no, that, that's too early? I thought it was, that's too early. I still, had, I still had Scheffler in there. Even as he played 18, I still thought, he's just playing some, you know, here's another one. He's 25. He's younger yeah. than, than uh, Fitzpatrick is. Here's another one who... You know, the the brand of golf that he's playing is just, it's just pristine to watch. It's just, you you just think, you know, these shots are almost, you know, just uh, hard to believe some of them. They're so calm. He's so calm and they're so, they're just so true and pure. And I just thought still to 18, I thought, okay, he's still in it. And I thought it would be thrilling if he had birdied 18 yeah. as he did 17. There are two there are two misses on 18, Scheffler and Zalatoris, that, that create the situation where Fitzpatrick wins. And they're both close, and they both, both miss on the left. And I thought Zalatoris's putt was in from television. I thought it was in. How about you? Um, yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so then, then you're going to have a playoff. It's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting circumstance. The shot of the day ultimately turns out to be, I guess, on 18. It, it, so you're on 18. Zalatoris and Scheffler are one behind um, Fitzpatrick. As it turns out, before Fitzpatrick and Zalatoris get to the green, Scheffler misses a putt. So he's at five, and, and Zalatoris is at five, and Fitzpatrick is at six. Um, Fitzpatrick tees off, and you hear, you very clearly hear, I assume it's Paul Azinger say, you just can't be left. You just can't be left in the trap. You cannot be left in the trap. You have to be right. 
and he puts it left into the trap. And Azinger again says, what a huge mistake. Now, Chuck, you are thinking the exact same thing. You're thinking this is a bogey, and, and, and maybe Zalatoris wins, or maybe then we have a three-way playoff. I'm thinking three-way playoff at that point. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking that I'm thinking of Scheffler inside watching somewhere, and I'm thinking he must be thinking, oh, wow, I'm, I'm about to go back out and play some more. Because, you know, they, and they had just commented about Scheffler when he teed off on 18. And this, I think it was Azinger said, now the thing to do is to avoid the left. Yeah. You know, just you got to avoid that over there, that left. And so, and so here's a guy who hooks right there into the left, and it just seemed <laughs> it just seemed a bogey was was clear. And then he Maybe makes he makes a great shot. Now he had made a great shot from you know off the course earlier in the day as well. And by the yeah. way, he goes for it. This kid pulls out three wood and goes for stuff that other people don't go for, and he appears to be a skinny little kid, and he kills it, as does Zalatoris. They kill it, and they're not like DeChambeau. They're not large like that. But he gets out of the – he hits – that wins the tournament. That shot gives him a comfortable par, right? Right, and the shot on 15 that you mentioned as well. Ah, That comes from one of those – one of those, you know – where you have to part the the gallery into a into a little, what would you say, a little alley where you yes. can knock yep. the ball comes out of one of those, and it too goes up and onto the green, uh, improbably both of them. So, yeah, these two shots are. Everyone's going to talk about the one at eighteen forever and should. But I the thought one the at 15, fifteen shot was tremendous. It, it was, was tremendous. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. And and uh, you just watch as Zalatoris left a putt a couple of inches short on seventeen. You know, I mean, and and it is said of Zalatoris he can't putt, and it is said because for a few years he hasn't putted. His record in the majors for a young kid is spectacular in terms of getting into the top five or certainly the top ten. If he makes that putt, I mean, that, that's what what I'm saying is that this tournament you can say that Rom backed off, and you can say McElroy backed off, and Burns backed off, and Morikawa took himself out of it on Saturday. Uh, and, you know, Matsuyama was too far. But you can say all these things about these great players. But these two kids, they went out to win it. And Fitzpatrick won, right? There's no doubt in your mind Fitzpatrick won this tournament. No doubt. And they, and they, they played brilliant rounds that made them look like 37-year-old people who had been doing this. Now, of course, Dallatoris has six top tens in, in the nine majors he's entered. You yeah. know, so... He has been doing it, but still, he looks beyond his 25 and still hasn't won on tour, which is on PGA Tour, which is odd. But, um, you know, the, just the way the look about them, the whole look of them, just their level of competence, it was just, it was really an endorsement of that idea that's been going around in recent years that the kids who come out of college golf are way better than they've ever been. And so the, you know, I, I realized Fitzpatrick didn't stay the whole time, but, um, but just the people who are in their twenties now are so ready to do this. This is what I think as well. I think of McElroy and Thomas and Fowler. I think of them as young kids, but they're not. The young kids are Morikawa 
and Hovland and Wolf has taken himself out of it, but these two as well. I mean, you know, people, who's Matthew Fitzpatrick? Well, he was a Ryder Cup kid. I mean, you don't just, you don't get on the Ryder Cup because somebody knows your dad. It doesn't work that way. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, this kid can play. He looks like a total child. He looks 16 years old, but he can play. He won the, U- and, and it is that great statistic that he won the USAM at the country club and stayed in that same house this time with the same people. That's a lovely story, is it not? It, sir, it, it is, and just the whole, you know, the whole idea, that sort of mystery of, you know, walking around a course that you've seen before and just the little moments that maybe you, maybe you yourself can't even describe or, or define of where it helps you and where it helps you to have won there before. And of course, when he won that U.S. Amateur, Zalatoris played in that as well and then went around in the years after telling people that's the hardest course I ever played. So, didn't yeah, so, Scheffler play in it also? That maybe I'm wrong. I, I thought maybe he played in it too, but I'm not sure. What the, their ages are? This they're around the same age, are they not? Or is Scheffler a year younger? Or Zalatoris a year younger? Scheffler and Zalatoris both 25. So. Right, and yeah, Fitzpatrick yeah. 26, 27, 27. Yeah. Okay, all right. So I, I so. mean, it, it was there was a really cool tournament, and now I'm going to ask the question that nobody wants to hear anymore which is um, what happens, you know, with the, does the Saudi tour go after Matthew Fitzpatrick? I know it was buried for 48 hours because for 48 hours there was great competitive golf with great names on the board, but does it rear its ugly head as soon as the tournament is over, Chuck? Oh, I would say absolutely. I would say that you'd, you'd like to listen in on the phone calls that are going on, you know. It was interesting that that the the – Live Tour players did not fare well. Very, very badly. Yes, very badly. Uh, DJ tied for 24th. Reed tied for 49th. DeChambeau tied for 56th. Richard Bland, 43. You know, those are the only four who made the cut. That was, and that, that, I think that helped the tournament a lot, too. Mm-hmm. To, as you say, uh, buried this thing for a few days so we didn't have to really think about it. But, but um, I have to start... Rev up thinking about it again. Um, I know, as you say, nobody wants to hear the the question, but it's inevitable. I can't imagine that Greg Norman isn't going to make a phone call to Matthew Fitzpatrick. Can, I can't imagine he won't. Right? Don't you feel the same way? I would guess he's just waiting for whatever he considers to be the polite time to call someone in the morning today. <laughs> yeah, and that's... then from then. <laughs> right, right. Because, I mean, it's it's easier... It's easier to poach the European players. They've, it's, it's been shown it's easier to poach them. And, I also, and, then, and then this week there's a tournament in Oregon, right? That's coming. Yes, that's right. Are that's you going right. to go out and do that? I'll be at Wimbledon, so I will miss oh. out on that. Oh, well, you know what? Wimbledon's a better gig. It is. It's a better, it, it's, it's a better gig. Oh, good for you. All right, anyway. Better gig than just about anything, right? Yeah. Thank you so much for being on and always being there when we ask. And, and I apologize, as I always do, for talking too much. But I got very excited because I really liked the tournament. You know, I liked it. I thought it was good. No, was thank good. you more. All right. Chuck Culpepper, boys and girls. We'll take a break. Uh, Mark Maskey will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. It's just, 
This is great. Sort of. I once again, this is Brent White, and this is these are the Squires from forty, at least forty years ago, maybe more. And it just sounds to me like they went in the studio last night and said, "Let's do that thing you do. Let's just do that. Let's have a backstory. We'll send it to this moron who does a podcast. He'll you hook him so easy because he loves this kind of music. You know, I would buy this. This, album. Sound, this sounds just like there's a group." You got to be old. The grassroots. Oh, sure. This sounds just like the grassroots. Am I right, Sean? Just like the grassroots. Absolutely. You know, these are the squires, the squirers. It's we've been set up. We love it. <laughs> we've been totally set up. If people like the squires want to send us their original music that was recorded a thousand years ago, how are they doing? <laughs> yes, including the Gollywogs. If they want to send us yeah. anything, I don't uh, jingles at TonyCornerHouseShow.com. I mean, I don't. I don't mind being hooked like a fish. I don't mind. Listen, if I'm hooked, I again, I love these songs. Yeah. I think they're great. Mark Maskey joins us now. Maskey had a story over the weekend, um, a really good story about Deshaun Watson. And I'm endlessly fascinated with the notion that people think this guy's going to play. I just uh, I can't bring myself to think this. And, Mark, the, the NFL is leaking, is leaking. The NFL is trying to... The, what, what is the key word in terms of the type of punishment that the NFL is strongly considering for Deshaun Watson? I know. I, I think actually the key word at this point is arguing. And, 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 and that, that goes to the fact that, that, that people have to look at this process completely different. Now, I don't know how much people knew about, you know, how the way player discipline in the NFL has worked over the years, how closely they followed, you know, some of the other cases under the personal conduct policy, you know, going all the way up to Ben Roethlisberger, Ezekiel Elliott, some of these other cases. But it's different now. Uh, and, and it became different with the last collective bargaining agreement in 2020. And this was something the NFLPA was pushing for for a long time. You know, they, they, they didn't want Roger Goodell to both make the first decision on player discipline, and then you decide to appeal, and then it also goes to Roger That's Goodell. Right. So that obviously was not something that the NFLPA thought was a great system. Uh, and what the NFLPA wanted was a system where Roger Goodell made the first decision, and then you could appeal to a neutral arbitrator. Well, the, you know, the league and, and Roger Goodell weren't willing to go that far, weren't willing to disrupt it that much. But one of the concessions that was, you know, CBA negotiations are a trade-off back and forth. But one of the concessions the league made was there's, so there's a new system now where the initial decision is made by a neutral arbitrator, and then the appeal goes back to Roger Goodell. So it's a different system than, than any of these other cases has been resolved under. Um, and it's really, the funny thing is, 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 this is the first case. So this is the first case that has come under the system. So we don't know exactly how it works, how it's going to play out. It's obviously a very high-profile, highly-charged case um, that, that, that becomes the first case. But there will be a neutral arbitrator. It's a former U.S. district judge named Sue Robinson, who's now an attorney in Delaware. So each the, the league will go to Sue Robinson. And then basically what I reported is the league has, you know, its investigation is done or nearly done. The NFL has concluded, yes, and in the view of the NFL, Deshaun Watson violated the personal conduct policy. The NFL will argue for, and, and people on both sides of the case said to me, the NFL will argue for a significant suspension. That's, That's the, the word, word they used. Significant. That's the word. Significant. Now, so, one person on, on, 
on the player side of the case, on Deshaun Watson side of the case, and they have a very good idea now at this point what the NFL is going to ask for and argue for. And and I said, well, is it going to be you know a one year? And then that is probably so. So on Watson side of the case, we told me probably one year, but we we don't know exactly what the NFL is going to argue for. But we we do. I think we now know that that it's going to be significant. Uh, what the NFL is going to ask for, it could be one year. So that those are the terms that people should be thinking. Of. But again, it's not just a case where in the past where the NFL decided what it's going to do. Therefore, that's what it is. In this case, the NFL has to go make its case before Sue Robinson, the arbitrator, say Watson, we believe, violate the personal conduct policy for these reasons. We believe he should be suspended for whatever. And then the NFLPA will make its case and may say, you know, we concede that he that he violated the policy, or we say he didn't violate the policy, and therefore we think the discipline should be this, or there should be no discipline. Then Sue Robinson will make a decision. Now, if, if she says there was no violation of the conduct policy, the case is over. If she says there was a violation of the conduct policy, and I decide that this is the, the discipline and suspension of however many games, then either side, the NFLPA or the league, can make the appeal back to Roger Goodell, and he makes the final decision. Yeah, so this that's is, how it works. And yeah. it, that's why I say that I think the right word is argued, that the, the NFL will have to argue its case at this first step before this neutral arbitrator. Although I think we could, I think we could safely conclude that since Roger Goodell has the right to make the final decision after an appeal, that he would you know, bring the hammer down, you know, if he could. We, I, I, I suspect that's true. But let me, let me go backwards for a second and, and have you describe to people, this is not real court. This is not real law. When people say, well, he wasn't even, you know, indicted, Mark explained that that doesn't matter. That's not right, what exactly. it's and, issue. And, you know, and, and when we see that before in the personal kind, if you go all the way back to Ben, ben Roethlisberger, he was suspended without criminal charges. You know, and I know people like to say, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Well, yes, I mean, obviously that's a bedrock principle when you're, you're in course in court in, in a criminal case. But this is this is your employer's policy. This is your yes. employer having the right to say this is not up to our standard. This is not sort of the image we want to project for our businesses. And now it's a collectively bargained thing. So it is done between the league and the NFLPA. And we have seen the NFLPA in the past go to court over some of these player disciplinary cases. But but in general, the courts, you know, the NFLPA did win a few times. But in general, the courts sort of reaffirmed that Roger Goodell has the right has a lot of authority to do what he thinks is right in these cases under the system as it existed before. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is, as you said, this is not court. This is not, uh, this is not sort of the burden of proof that exists in, in, in the criminal cases, which Watson has not been charged with a crime. It's not even the burden of proof that exists in the civil cases that are now sort of pending. This is an NFL policy. This is your employer's right to say this is not you know, what we want to project in our business is not the standard that we set for our employees. So I sit here and every single time Deshaun Watson makes a public statement and he denies doing anything wrong whatsoever. And then he says, I want to be a role model. I sit here and I'm I'm slack jawed by this. And I wonder, do you think that Deshaun Watson's public statements are hurting him? You know, it's a difficult question because there are several audiences 
for Deshaun Watson's public statements at this point. And I'm sure they are largely crafted uh, by his legal team. So uh-huh. you, you, you have the audience of what's going to happen in court, and there are certain things that he has to say for that. And then you have the larger audience of, of sort of shaping public opinion. So I, I, I would give two answers. I assume he is saying the things that his attorneys have told him to say, and therefore, you know, in that way, they believe that that's bolstering his legal case. In the court of public opinion, you know, I no, I I don't think he's helped himself very much in the court of a public opinion with some of the things that he said. I think particularly in in the first press conference he did, sort of his introductory press conference with the Browns, where he had that one line about how he has no regrets about any of this, and then he had to come back in this latest one and sort of readdress that and then and, and try to explain that, well, I don't have any regrets about what I did, but I have regrets about how this has affected everyone else around me. You know, that sort of back and forth, that doesn't help you in terms of public opinion. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think most of what he said has probably been crafted by his legal team as to how it plays out in that realm and perhaps in the realm of the NFL disciplinary process rather than the primary concern being sort of, you know, what he okay. really thinks, uh, which, which probably doesn't matter in, in terms of what they're telling him to say, and also in terms of, of how it plays in the public, I think those are, are, are pretty far down the list. I think what he's being told to say probably is within mind of you know, the legal cases that are pending. I assume the NFLPA has to advocate for him. I, if I was in the NFLPA, legally, so, legally so yeah. I mean, if I'm paying dues to represent him, yeah, yeah. if I'm paying dues, you got to right. you got to advocate for me. Right. Um, did I see at the bottom of one of your stories that one of their positions, the NFLPA's position, is well, you didn't punish Robert Kraft and you didn't punish Dan Snyder, although I think they did. I, I think they took the team away from Dan Snyder for some period of time where he's not allowed to do anything. Does that work for you? Is that is that that doesn't really work for me, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, I, I, you're right. You're exactly right. That that that, and everything you said. You're right. The NFLP has a duty of representation with Deshaun Watson as it goes through this NFL disciplinary process. They can't just say, you know, even if they wanted to, they couldn't say, oh, you know, you know, we don't want any part of this case. No, they they have to be involved. They have to represent his side as this goes through the NFL disciplinary process. In this case, they've brought in Jeffrey Kessler. Uh, their outside yeah. attorney, who is a you know, is a guy who they, they bring in in some of these tougher cases, who is a very strong advocate and will fight the NFL very hard at every step along the way. That is his history. But yes, I don't think that will sort of be the bedrock of their case. But uh, but I was told that, that was one of the points that they were raised. That look, and it's not just that you haven't disciplined these other owners because Snyder was disciplined, but that you haven't, you didn't suspend those owners. Right. Uh, I think that will be the argument. How can you just how can you suspend Deshaun Watson where you didn't suspend these owners? And and, and they will cite this sort of part of the personal conduct policy that even says that, you know, owners are held to a higher standard. So how can you not suspend these owners and then say that, that Deshaun Watson is going to be suspended and, and, you know, as the NFL argues for a significant amount of time, where the policy specifically says that owners are held to a higher standard. I, you know, I don't know that that will be the sort of bedrock of their defense. Right. It won't maybe right. not be a main point, but, but I was told it will be at least part of their defense. And, and, and I, un, I understand that because you have to do something like that. So I'll get you out pretty much on this. How long, in your opinion, what do you think the suspension will be? And what do you think of Cleveland? What do you think of Cleveland? 
putting itself in this ridiculous box. You know, they don't have Baker. They have nothing. They have no quarterback, it seems to me. Uh, what do you think of what, what has happened there? That's, that's, to me, terrible ownership. To me. Well, to me. You know, the first part of it, I mean, I, it, it's hard to know because, because, you know, we're just, because of the process we describe, that it's not just sort of the NFL knows what it wants to do and then does it. And, and, and you were, you were, the point you made earlier is right, that if the NFL thinks it should be this, well, then maybe it will be that because because ultimately Roger Goodell will decide yeah, the appeal. But, the last but you, I'm not sure you can 100% say that because, you know, uh, the NFLPA has, has got, secured this system where a neutral arbitrator decides first. So I think in the NFLPA's view, and they may be right about this, they may be wrong, but they believe that especially in the first case, maybe Roger Goodell would be reluctant to step in and in the very first case, Okay. Throw out the neutral arbitrator right. and do something vastly different. Now they may be wrong about that. That may be what happened. But so so I, I to answer the first question, and I know it's a cop out, but it's hard to say because we're just now starting a process that is a different process than we've ever seen before, and it's not the NFL's decision. Uh, it's not the NFL, it's never been the NFLPA's decision, but it's sort of not their decision. It will be a decision first made by someone else. And then come back to Roger Goodell. So, uh, but I do think that 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 at this point, you definitely have to consider it well within the realm of possibility that Deshaun Watson doesn't play at all this season. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that that's what it will be, uh, but but you have to certainly consider it within the realm of possibility. And you know, going back to what you said about the Browns, I mean, this goes back to to remember when that process started, and 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 everybody just. Once there were no criminal charges, you saw not just the Browns, but a handful of teams jump in and say, you know, that's the, that, that means we go after him. That means it just becomes a football decision. And it seemed hasty at the time. And, you know, how you still had all these cases pending. And, and then the Browns said, well, we did our homework. And it turns out, well, they never spoke to a single victim. <laughs> no, they didn't uh, do anything. A single accuser. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to say anything. But a single accuser. Uh, at any point along this process. So it, it just seemed like that, that, and not just the Browns, but every team that went after Watson was really quick to sort of throw all of this aside and say, no criminal charges, that means let's go after him. And, you know, if it takes a guaranteed $230 million contract to get it done, that's what we'll do. It's about football. And, you know, that, that just seemed premature, and, and, and the Browns may end up, there, there may be a price to be paid for that. There certainly paying it now in some way with the public reaction, and they may pay it you know, even more with what we see happens in terms of the football implications of it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you it's a fascinating, to me, it's completely fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm always at that point where you're telling me there's 24 lawsuits? Are they all made up? Are they all made up? So anyway, thank you, Mark. Mark Maskey, boys and girls. We'll take a break. Uh, we will come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show.
Great thanks to Bruce Griffin. That's fabulous. Wish I could do that. Just, <laughs> just fabulous. So, so just great. fabulous. You want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? We got the bagel sandwiches today. Yes. Very excited about that. All you need to do is go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That just about does it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, what's the matter with the car I'm driving? Can't you tell that it's out of style? Should I get a set of white wall tires? Are you going to cruise the Miracle Mile? Nowadays, you can't be too sentimental. Your best bet's a true baby blue continental. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk, it's still rock and roll to me. Billy Joel, Hicksville, Long Island. Thanks to our guests today, Mark Maskey, Chuck Culpepper. Thanks to today's sponsors, Progressive and Sunday. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get show through Apple, please leave us a review. From Kevin Burke in Chicago. And this refers back to something that we talked about after the Belmont Stakes. Okay. The owner of the horse that won the Belmont Stakes, Mo Donegal, the oh, owner of that horse. Right. While listening to Monday's show, you and Chuck Culpepper were discussing the Belmont Stakes and the owner of the winning horse, Mike Repole, R-E-P-O-L-E, or Rapole, I'm not sure, a.k.a. Mike from Queens. I paused and I said, wait a minute, I know that guy. He used to be my boss at Glasso, maker of vitamin water and smart water. Is this a semi-DA moment? In addition to being the latest Belmont winner, I thought you might find it interesting to learn some other fun facts about this guy. Mike and his partners have created and sold three brands to the Coca-Cola company for a total of approximately $6 billion. <laughs> Vitamin water, smart water, and body armor sports drink. Mike also successfully built, created, and sold Pirate's Booty Snacks. Oh, yeah. He's a diehard St. John's basketball fan and alum and has been known to be spotted on the bench next to the head coaches. He recently donated $50 million to cancer research on Long Island in the name of his grandmother called Nona's Garden Foundation. He isn't just Mike from Queens. He may be one of the most interesting men in the world. That's, that's amazing. That's something. From Tim Cree in Fort Collins, Colorado, speaking of today, Monday is my daughter's ninth birthday. When's a good time for her to call and tell you about it? <laughs> Just so you know, the theme of her birthday is mermaids, and the party is at the pool, so you might want to have some good mermaid-related anecdotes for her. Thanks in advance. From Spencer Thompson in Boston, Massachusetts. So it wasn't a flight, but I'm only 27, and I haven't been flying and able to recognize famous people for all that long, so give me a break. Back in 2003, when I was eight, my dad took me to the Quail Hollow Club to see what was then called the Wachovia Championship. We sat behind, we set up behind seven green. Immediately, Phil Mickelson hit a ball over the green, which landed right in front of us. He and Bones walked to their ball and prepared to hit one of his famous flop shots. The crowd around me was enthralled, and all I could think of was, wow, those are some nice-looking wedges. Maybe if I touch them, I'll chip as well as Phil. I reached out, I grabbed his 56. And no one seemed to notice, not even my dad. The next weekend, when I'm hitting flop shots on the practice screen at Gaston Country Club, and I'm trying to channel my best like-Mike energy, but instead nearly decapitated a couple eating dinner on the piano, <laughs> at the patio. Clearly, just touching his clubs wasn't enough to ingratiate me with the chipping gods. But hey, there's still time to run up a $10 million gambling tab. It's a wonderful email. As is this. From Andrew Courier. A long time back, I was sitting at a London hotel bar. Next to me was a rock band lamenting about how they were looking for a drummer. I mentioned I have a friend who's a drummer. We call him Stumpy. I added that bad luck seems to follow him around. They seemed overly interested. It's right out of... Stumpy Joe Peeps. Yeah, Stumpy Peeps. It's, it's out of the, the Rob Reiner movie. The Spinal Tap, yeah, yes. It's just great. From James Fleming. I wish I hadn't been somewhat late to the party with this. I hope Tony can still use it. If you knew Lucy, you'd understand the outpouring of love that followed her music being played on the show. 
Lucy Koplansky. I've had my David Aldrich moment. This longtime loyal little can tell you Lucy is not only a great singer-songwriter, but a great psychologist, too. And how do I know? In the early 1990s, Lucy and I interned together at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in Manhattan, two members of a great six-intern team at the St. Luke's site. Like her, I was an ex-musician, musician, though I had nothing like our talent. So we bonded over that commonality in addition to the joys and travails of an excellent but demanding internship. She was a delightful presence with a great sense of humor, but I wasn't surprised when she returned to music, made many great albums, and became an esteemed artist on the singer-songwriter circuit. When we'd see each other after that return, we'd joke that now she'd gotten the whole psychology thing out of her system by taking five years to get a doctorate and complete a grueling internship, she could go back to what she really loved. She's a soulful, multi-talented person who brings love and intelligence to all her endeavors. I strongly encourage all littles to see her live and buy her records or stream her music. She's an artist. By the way, given this opportunity, I'd like to ask to be named the official forensic psychologist Ooh. of the Tony Kornheiser show. Sometime down the line, I'll tell you of my brush with the great Abby Lowell in that capacity. No surprise, he did not disappoint. <laughs> Jim Fleming Garrett part. That's Maryland. great. Um, from Jojo Garofalo. On my way to work today, I was passed by a truck that said TK's Fire Protection. I was just wondering if you'd taken upon a new business venture. And if, it, and if so, is it more profitable than Chatter was? I'll wait by the phone for your call, JoJo from Nashville. Thanks, JoJo. From Derek Brown in Akron, Ohio. I'm wearing jeans today. I hate wearing jeans. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. From Jay Covington Thompson in Lexington, South Carolina. Lachiserie from Montreux, Switzerland. That phrase sounds more authentic from the land of Swiss and Gruyere. After dipping my toes in Lake Geneva, my wife asked me why I put my socks and shoes on left, left, right, right. And I replied, Dr. Kornheiser. She harumphed and walked away. From Kirsten in La Plata. That's in Maryland. Let's hope it before the earthquake. Yes. Shaken, not stirred. <laughs> right. Just like to say that you uh, know you're too deep into littlehood when you're listening to Chuck Todd provide first-class commentary on a primetime congressional hearing, and all you can think of is he's such a degenerate gambler. <laughs> From Kobe in Baltimore, 60 me emails a day? Wow. I've started eating blackberries. I like them. I do not like cottage cheese. You're lost. <laughs> From John Vanjoski in Potomac, Maryland. First time, long time, I'm watching the NCAA track and field championships on ESPN. This is last week. And in the first 1,500-meter heat, Emily Mackey from Binghamton won the heat and qualified for the final on Saturday. Thought you'd like to give her a shout-out. I wish I had seen this earlier, but, you know. But congratulations, yes. too. I got one more, and this is an old one. This is from February. Okay. But I, so I sort of... I back sort in of the archives. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's from Ron T. Catch. Here's two in your wheelhouse. I grew up and currently live in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, home of Perry Como and Bobby Vinton, whom my mom went to high school with. <laughs> also, in fifth and sixth grade at Borland Manor Elementary School, I had a classmate named Demi Guyans. You would know her better as Demi Moore. At the end of sixth grade, before moving to the junior high, we hand handmade autograph books for our classmates. To, you hand over the autograph books for classmates to sign. My best friend at the school, Bob Lawrence, had Demi sign his. She wrote, to a very sweet and cute boy, remember me always. Oh, he has. That book is still prominently displayed in his house. If you're out on your bike tent, everyone, as always, do wear white. I hate bananas. I hate pumpkins. I hate watermelon. I like olive. I love gummy bears. I hate squirrels. Anytime, anywhere, 
must be 